right, good evening. Let me turn my microphone on. Testing, testing, there it is. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John. This topic of love does have the most real estate in, uh, in this book, but we are going to be focused here on uh, chapter 4. That's where we're going to land this evening. Chapter 4. But before we get into that, I just want to thank you for being here this evening. I know um, it's very encouraging to look out and see this many people out here tonight. Um, and I want to thank Pastor Jim. I want to thank Pastor Michael. I don't have um, many opportunities to speak these days, just uh, with Elizabeth and my schedule here uh, over the past couple of years. But we're, um, I, I'm excited for any opportunity up here that I get to preach, and I'm excited that all of you are here today. Um, and I'm looking forward to discussing this next topic with you and pray that the Lord will show you some of the same things that he's shown me over my study um, recently. So up to this point, just in review in our First John study, we've heard from Pastor Jim, Andy, Ben, and Carrie. And uh, these four men have given us four unique approaches to this beautiful epistle. Um, Pastor Jim gave us the introduction, discussing what we need to look for while studying this book, um, not just uh, speakers, but everybody out here listening as well, or anybody who takes the time to study this book personally. Um, Andy showed us, uh, started out and showed us the, the first test, which is the test of um, our relationship with the world. Um, ben then taught about our obedience to God's word, and then Carrie last week taught on the test of the obedience um, to God's son. And tonight, my topic is one which hits pretty close to home with each and every one of us. You see, we live in a time where words like love and hate are tossed about pretty often. Um, this isn't necessarily something I'm implying we should stop. All I'm trying to say is that I think that we might have become desensitized to words like this. We state we love sports. We love good food, a funny joke, our spouses, our children, our jobs, our lives, our family, our homes, our pets, our cars, and so on. But what do we mean by this? Obviously, I don't love my job in the same way that I love my dog, right? Um, I, I don't love my car in the same way I love good food, and I don't love my wife in the same way I love hockey, right? Each of these types of love are very different because they're directed at different things. And this evening, I want to mention that 1 John is a book saturated with endearing words, with words of love, such as beloved and, of course, love. I want to reiterate what has been mentioned in the weeks prior. Um, first of all, that 1 John is a nonlinear book. So it's not set up like point 0.1, point 0.2, point 0.3, point 0.4. It's like everything's mixed together. And um, I'll admit that these past few weeks have made me pretty nervous, okay? <laughs> Listening to, to the, the past sermons because I'm thinking, oh man, he's preaching my sermon. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and, and rewrite it. But there's a reason for that feeling, okay? Um, it's because, um, and it's the same reason that we're taking a topical approach to this book uh, rather than strictly an expositional approach. Because of this nonlinear format, John takes what Paul would normally set up as pillars to prop up his main topic and, and creates um, like a cake, like he bakes a cake, okay? Um, in the end, all the different parts are blended together to create one beautiful thing. And that's not to say that John wrote this letter in a sloppy way, right? Um, but rather seamlessly integrated all of his points in order to take some lofty, profound theological truths and bring them down to the level of his readers. This style is filled with subtleties, and it ebbs and flows throughout all six of these topics to present its main thrust in the form of a mosaic. I want you to keep that in mind this evening as we read our text. Of course, I love a good structured three-point outline, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's really obvious in a text, but that's not what our passage presents this evening. Um, what we have is a definite main idea that is both separated and unified. See if you could pick up on this as we begin to read here in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start 
in verse number 7. And I've chosen to read this out of the King James Version this evening. So please follow along on the, the screens as we go through these verses. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he, has given us, he hath given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath, hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Excuse me. I hope as we read through that text that you picked up on um, one of the pieces John subtly placed, and that is love is not human. It's because of this idea and the direction I believe John leads his readers throughout this epistle that I titled this sermon here this evening, Loving Through the Work of Love. Loving Through the Work of Love. So let's pray and ask God to reveal his truth to us this evening. Father, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you for the lessons that we have uh, before us this evening, what we have to learn together as a congregation. I pray that you'd speak to your people through me tonight and uh, just help us to focus and tune in and walk away with, with this key truth that you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been warned not to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, of course. Tonight is the Super Bowl. <laughs> Shocker, right? I don't know if, if, you, if you all knew that, but tonight is the Super Bowl. Um, I'm sorry I had to acknowledge the elephant in the room. I know it's kind of a sensitive topic right now, given the events of the past couple weeks. But the fact remains that many people around the world, even as we speak, are setting up parties, making up food, cleaning their homes, and donning their most extreme fan gear. You know, it's estimated that nearly... 200.5 million U.S. adults plan to watch the Super Bowl tonight. That is, um, what, two-thirds of the U.S. population, just about. It's also estimated that $20 billion will be spent betting on the game tonight. $20 billion. And um, the Super Bowl itself will produce about $500 million in revenue. So I think it's pretty obvious that Americans love football. <laughs> uh, in fact, it can be said that football is American. The love of football is so prevalent in the U.S., it's a quality of a true American, really. The love for football is seen by the massive amount of money poured into this weekend's event. The millions of spectators and their parties is so obvious. It really is a defining piece of American culture. So when asked, what is the defining piece of a Christian, what should the answer be? Google says, someone who is a follower of Christ. Pretty simply put. If you ask an atheist, um, I looked up a forum online, and uh, they define Christians as theists who have faith uh, in a power greater than themselves. 
These are all statements that, that come from outside sources, and for the purpose of our study tonight, I'm interested in how Scripture defines a believer. Well, I don't think we have to look any further than, than the epistle that we're in tonight. Um, if you look in, in verse 12 of the same chapter, chapter 4, John says, if we love one another, God dwells in us. Chapter 3, verse 14 states, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. It seems to me that John is pointing to the love we show one another as a defining quality of a true believer. That puts some weight behind we sh how we show love, doesn't it? It makes you think a little bit about the way that you reacted maybe to a coworker or, or another church member here recently when they said something, something sour about you. The weight scripture puts on loving, specifically loving other believers, is immense. It's a sign of genuine repentance, a sign of genuine conversion, excuse me. So along this topic of loving fellow believers, the passage we've already read tonight provides some theological insight on different key points of what love is. John first points to the origin of love, then he continues with the inspiration of a believer's love, and then talks about the maturation of love. And as I mentioned before, this is, this is nonlinear, okay? So you'll see all three of these topics dipped into during his explanation of these three points. And as we'll see this evening, John has a motive behind all of these. John presents to us three facts about the Godhead that is going to require us to act. And I want you to prayerfully and attentively listen this evening to see what that action is, and then decide how you could implement this into your life. So first of all, John pointed to the Father as the origin of love. You know, every couple has a, a, a story. They have a love story. And it's something that they enjoy talking about. Ask any couple you know, and as soon as you say, hey, tell me, how'd you meet? They'll light up. They'll light up immediately. Most of the time, they'll light up immediately. I love talking about how Elizabeth and I met. All right? Um, I met Elizabeth at my sister's wedding, and my sister's here tonight too, so everybody wave to her. Um, <laughs> I met her at my sister's wedding. She was the photographer that afternoon. Um, and um, you could say that she made a pretty big impression on me when we first met. I say that because she smacked me in the face with the door, and that's how we met. <laughs> I was running late for the wedding, I was running through the front of the church door, and wham, I got smacked in the face, and she was coming out with the dress, you know, taking pictures. So that's how we were introduced, <laughs> and the rest is history, right? But I love to talk about how Elizabeth and I met. It's something I'll never get tired of retelling. The origin of a love story is often viewed as the most tender point of someone's love story, and one that's looked on with great endearment. This seems to be how scripture presents the great love story of God toward man. Throughout every book of the Bible, this love story is woven. And here's another example of that, here in our text. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Here it is, right off the bat. Love is Christian. Love is a distinguishing trait of a believer. Not only that, though, but love originates with God. That uniqueness of love gives it these three distinct characteristics. First of all, love is holy. Our passage says love is of or from God. Love finds its origin in God himself, which makes it a holy quality. This isn't the only passage um, that has this type of wording, um, and if you just skip down a few more verses, in verse 16, it says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Love was first introduced to us by God. But not only introduced to us, his love was infectious. A distinct characteristic of a believer is that he or she shows a holy love. But does that mean that love is a requirement for salvation? No, it doesn't. 
uh, we don't need to love others in order to become a Christian, right? Um, if there is no love, though, there may not be life. And this very much dances the same line that good works has in a believer's life. Works are not required for salvation, but we will show good works if we're saved. Meaning there, be, there may be no life if there is no fruit. Sound familiar? <laughs> I, um, we love him because he first loved us, is what our text says a little further down. And we'll speak more on the implications of that statement a little later on. But for now, I want you to see that love is holy. It finds its origin in God the Father, and we only have it because God loved us first. There's an action required here, though. Listen to this quote about holiness. Holiness is the moral excellence of God that unifies his attributes and is expressed through his actions, setting him apart from others. Believers are called to be holy as God is holy. One way we can strive to be holy as God is holy is to love others. We often think of separateness from the world as being modestly dressed or living a good life, but it goes beyond that. Holiness is what makes us unique. And John points to love as holy. A call to love others is a call to holiness. But not only is love holy, but love is divine. What does it mean when something is divine? Well, something is divine when it is of or has the nature of God. When something has been touched by God. Again, our verse says, love is of God. It is the definition, <laughs> right there. Um, love, as it is presented in this text, perfectly fits the criteria of something that is divine. So what are the implications of this? We'll look down at verse 8. Our passage says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Remember earlier, we said that love is not a requirement for salvation, but it will be present in those who are regenerated. John, however, takes this a step further in verse 9 when he says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Love is holy, as we discussed before. Love is divine. It is of God. And God the Father perfectly displayed this when he did these two things. First, he sent his Son to redeem us. And through that redemption, he empowered us to love. And these two things gave us the divine imprint of holiness through the work of his son. Already, we see this mosaic taking shape. Holiness and divine. So what would be the most obvious manifestation of that in our own lives? Well, it's our love. The most obvious sign of our holy and divine rebirth is love. But according to this verse, love originates with God, meaning love does not come naturally to us. If this is the case, God pouring love into our lives was an act of grace. Here's what John is trying to tell his readers with this verse. Love originated with God, and God demonstrated his love by sending his son to redeem us through his death. We can see that in verse 8. And there are three, I'm sorry, that's the wrong chapter. Um, it says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So love does not come naturally to us. The greatest act of grace was an act of love. I want you to notice the, the wording here in verse 10. John says, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is this telling us, readers, that we cannot love God? Is this telling us that our love for God doesn't count as love at all? Well, no. That little phrase there, herein is love, it's a phrase that signals not what love is, but the degree of love, the amount of love shown. In other words, this verse can be translated, love in its highest ideal is herein. So with that understanding of that phrase, we can better understand this verse to mean that the love of God showed to us is greater than the love we show. 
But why is that important for John to know? Why is that important for us to learn this evening? Well, this wording continues to support the idea that love is divine. It finds its origin in God. Therefore, our love is only but a reflection of true love, the love that God shows. We reflect the love of God like the moon reflects the sunlight. Our love pales in, cons- in comparison to the love God showed, specifically by sending his son to be our redeemer or the propitiation for our sins. I also want to point out that this love isn't one that we can keep to ourselves, right? Reflections d- direct light elsewhere. And that's what we're doing. We can also think of this um, like our lives are being filled with so much of the love of God that it cannot be contained. It bursts out at the seams. And it is shown to all of those around us. Well, the second half of verse 10 is the perfect segue into our our next direction. Um, John points at Christ, first as the one whom the Father sent as our Redeemer, but also the one by whom the Father has lavished his love upon us. Christ is the church's ultimate inspiration for love. Let's read verse uh, 11 through 16 again. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If no man hath, uh, no man hath seen God at any time, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. With that phrase there, no man hath seen God at any time, John is directly calling out. He's directly challenging the Antichrists at this time, okay? Little a, Antichrists. They're the people who are directly opposing the work of of the church, of of God, of the spread of the church at this time. Um, These Antichrists specifically claimed a secret faith um, by coupling, uh, I'm sorry, uh, they claimed a secret faith, and that's what John's challenging here. Um, one of the ways that they did this was through a belief called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the belief that people could only be saved by secret revealed knowledge. Um, they also had a negative view of the physical or material world. This bred a belief that conversion had to be a secret or, or private thing. Secret knowledge was only for those whom God found worthy to receive this knowledge, something totally contrary to a grace-centered teaching of Christianity that states God, um, grace-centered Christianity is, states that God elects by grace alone, not by works. And consequently, evangelism was taboo at this time, uh, and the spread of the gospel was no longer taught by these Gnostics, Gnostics as necessary. This is a bit different than the agnostic teaching, which states that we cannot know if God exists, and we Uh, So how can we imagine having a relationship with him? So don't get those two confused. But now that we have that background to better understand these verses, let's look again at verse 11. It says, Beloved, if God so love us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. This is John acknowledging um, these, these false teachers. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. The word picture that John is making here is that our love for one another is a visible display of an invisible God. Our love proclaims the God that we serve. It's a testimony of him. And it contradicts this idea that Christianity is a secret or a private thing. Our passage points to Christ as the inspiration for our love. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. This begs the question then, How did Christ love? If we are expected to love like Christ loved, like Christ loved, if we're expected to draw our inspiration from him, how did Christ love? First of all, he loved first. He did not wait, but he would make the first move. When there was an outcast woman at the well, he made the first move and loved her enough to initiate conversation and tell her the Messiah had come. When a tax collector named Zacchaeus was curious to hear this new teacher, Christ called him out of the tree, initiating a relationship with him and making the first move. When we were dead in our sins, Christ reached down and regenerated us, making the first move in saving us. Ours 
must also be an initiating love. We need to seek out the helpless and the lost. We should not wait to show kindness to those who are not kind to us. Second of all, he loved those who hated him. We must be like Christ. We cannot excuse ourselves from people because, from love because people are difficult. Listen, if the sinless God can love sinful people, then sinful people can surely love other sinful people. Next, he loved those who were different than he. No human will ever be more different than us than we are from God. Our love must not be limited to those who think just like us. Preferences and backgrounds are not a reason to avoid relationships with others. We should love one another despite our differences. Do we have to agree with everyone? No. <laughs> I promise you if you sat down with me or, or anybody else in this church, one-on-one, -on -one, you would not see 100% eye-to-eye with everybody here. But we must love one another. Next, his love accomplished what was best for us, even though it was not what we wanted at the time. The Messiah was always viewed as this great warrior. While he um, will return as a supreme ruler eventually, he first came as a servant. And those around him wanted that warrior at that time, though. They wanted that warrior to come. They, they didn't want this servant that they had in front of him. Listen, those around us might not like us. They might not agree with our message, with our, our ways of thinking. We are still commanded to love them, though. His love continued when it was not convenient. Jesus had secret meetings at night with the Pharisees. He skipped meals. He went days without sleep. He showed love when it wasn't convenient. He taught even though he knew it would eventually get him killed. He did all of these things out of love. Next, his love perseveres even though we wrong and offend him. We as humans committed the greatest offense and nailed the Son of God to a cross. He knew this. He knew this would happen, and he still chose to come to earth. We sin against him daily, yet he still chooses to not reject us. We ought to love with an unconditional and unbreaking love, just as Christ has shown us. Next, he loved at extreme cost. His love cost pain, suffering, loneliness, and a brutal death. He did all of that in love. And his love found concrete expression. This was not merely vague feelings, but real action. He washed feet. He served food. He built relationships. He touched the contagious. So what are you doing to show love to others around you? Who have you reached out to lately? Who have you visited recently? Application to these ways that Christ demonstrated love has faces, friend. These are not abstract truths. Christ was our inspiration for love. We should love like him. So, so who are you going to seek out to show love? Who that hates you are you going to show love? Who that is different than you will you be showing love? Who that does not want to even see you will you be showing love? Who you're going to show love to even when it's not convenient? Who will you show love to even though they've wronged and offended you? Who are you going to go great lengths to show love? And who are you going to take action to show love towards? The greatest expression of Christ-like love, however, was what John identified in verses 14 and 15 when he said, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And John identified Christ's proclaiming evangelism as the greatest expression of love to the world. We can love others in word or action, but we do not truly love someone unless we're willing to share the gospel with them. John said in, in the text here, we apostles have seen this great expression of love. But whoever confesses once for all that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells with him. So what does he mean by that? 
remember we've already established that God works love through his people. The love he pours into our lives bursts through the seams and leaks out into our lives so everybody can see it. This confession that Jesus is the Son of God that, that John says here is a manifestation of that outpouring of love. Our evangelism is, once again, the Father's love poured out from our lives. This was another reason that this, this Gnostic idea of a secret Christianity was, was totally obsolete. The love of God pours out into the life of a believer and is so great, it should be impossible to not tell people about it. It's a sign of genuine conversion. Now look again with me at, at verse 16. It says, And we have known, or seen, uh, he's once again pointing to himself and the other apostles, and believed the love that God hath to us, or given to us. Now that's Christ. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. John proclaimed Christ as the revelation of God's love to the world. Christ is the key to everlasting love in God. Christ is the revelation of God's love to the world. Sure, creation is beautiful. The universe is vast and seemingly endless. The human body is intrinsic. All these point to God and reveal his love to us. But nothing shouts the love of God to the world louder than this, that the Father sent his Son into the world to redeem it. And John said that God revealed his love to us through his Son, and we can show the most love to others by proclaiming that, by proclaiming the gospel. Here's a problem we're faced with after this section, though. How are we expected to love like Christ when we are not God? I know me. I know my heart, and Christ does too. In fact, he knows me better than I know myself. How can someone know me like that and still willingly choose to love me so much that he died for me? I wouldn't do that. I don't default to that kind of love like he does. That seems impossible. It seems inhuman. It seems supernatural. And that's exactly correct. John anticipated this response, and, and thanks to his nonlinear approach, right, um, to presenting ideas, John already mentioned the key to another direction towards which he is beginning to point. See if you can pick up on um, this, this, this subtle hint that John laid down in verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Okay, maybe it's not super subtle. <laughs> but maybe you're thinking, how does that answer my question? But it does, you see, because the work of redemption within our hearts is supernatural. It's a work of the spirit. As sinners scarred by the ugliness of the fall, it is impossible for us to be in communion with God. It is impossible for us to approach him in all of our sinfulness. It's impossible that he should love sinners like us. But he does. It's impossible. Yet here that message is proclaimed to the readers as the love of God is transacted to we who are unable to receive it. Or unworthy to receive it. It's impossible, but it's a fact. It transcends the natural and dips into the supernatural. And not only that, but his very spirit is left within us as a down payment of this transaction. You see, friend, our whole existence in this current moment transcends that natural. But let's not forget the peace that we have dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit. Notice how often the words boldness and perfection are said over those, those, these next few verses here. But also notice that there is an internal force at work here as well. Something seems to be refining us from the inside out. It's he that dwells within us right now. It's God's Holy Spirit. I want to remind you of a basic theological truth. John 14, 25 through 26 states that it is the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer and teaches him all things while we await Christ's return. Ezekiel speaks 
of the promise of the Spirit in this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As I read this passage, I can't help but notice the, the imprint of the spirit throughout this next section. I can't avoid it. Remember, John presented overarching spiritual truths subtly through his writings. And it's because of this evidence that I, I have to come to the conclusion that John is pointing this third direction by invoking the work of the third person of the Trinity and pointing to the Spirit as the one working within the church to perfect her in love. John pointed to the Spirit as the one working within the church to perfect her in love. Let's read verses 17 and 18. It says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we, have, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now let's take a, a deeper verse at these verse, uh, a deeper look at these verses. There's a lot going on here, okay? Um, first of all, I want to point out that perfect love is a love that is fully grown. It's matured. You know, from an early age, we've heard in Sunday school or, or here in church that the term perfect in Scripture, um, it, it means matured or, or grown to its fullest. And that idea is carried here in this text. Our love has to come um, to full maturity here. Where? It's the phrase that came just before this verse. Um, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. In that is our love fully grown. In what? In the work that God does within us. There's a working of reform within our beings that God is responsible for. That term, made perfect, is best understood when we look um, at another passage that John wrote. If we look at chapter 19 and verse 28 of um, John's gospel, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, it's that same word there, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now notice that this work described in our passage is not just final, though, like, like this other passage, now accomplished or, or, or um, made perfect, but it's ongoing. It's ongoing, yet final, together. Okay? This text gives us the idea that this work of redemption was finalized, but our text gives a little bit of a, it, it gives it a little, little bit of a different approach here. Um, this isn't something that just happened one time, and that's the end of it. This is a work that is perpetual. It's happened, and it's still happening. It continues from the day of redemption to the day of judgment. Next, love casts out fear. Speaking of the day of judgment, what is that all about? <laughs> uh, we hear a lot these days about different eschatological events in the future, or past, or present, depending on who you're talking to and what their view is. <laughs> um, but why is this something that John decided to mention in this particular section? Well, if our greatest work of love is spreading the gospel in the world, why might we need to be bold in the day of judgment? I'd caution you not to run with this phrase here, because it's, it's not as deep as you might think. At this time, the day of judgment was a pretty common phrase that just reflected the coming judgment of the world. Pretty, pretty obvious. <laughs> but this phrase, though, is is um, simply another ebb and flow in John's conversation here. John is stating that this work that is happening within us by his spirit involves many things. Again, this working of love within the believer is indicative of life. John is simply stating that salvation protects us from things that, unbe uh, that unbelievers do need to worry about, particularly judgment and fear. I want you to notice how John circles back to this idea here, though. Uh, verse 18 says that there is no fear in love, but this perfect work of love within us casts out fear. He, he then states, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. There's that phrase again, made perfect. This is an ongoing event. 
all John is doing in these, seemingly, in these verses here is describing salvation. This work of love, the Spirit is working within our lives. Quite simply put, the Spirit enables freedom or liberty to speak before our judge without fear. How does he do that, though? We can stand before a judge and still be fearful, no, no matter how kind that judge may be. What makes it so that we can live in love and not fear? Well, look at the phrase at the end of verse 17. He says, as he is, so are we in this world. It's important to understand the meaning of this verse because, because this is a key to this section, okay? God is holy, and the work of salvation he has accomplished in the believer declares that person holy. It declares them redeemed. So sure, standing before a judge uh, may cause fear within the guilty, but God has enacted a work of love within his children, declaring them as holy, declaring them guiltless of sin, for he loves his children deeply. This act of love makes us as he is while we are within the world. So while there may be a reason for others to fear, the believer can rest in the work of love that God has accomplished in their lives through his spirit. We are declared holy, a people touched by the divine. And that is how we are like him while we are within the world. I won't lie to you, though. The more I read this passage, <clears throat> the more I couldn't sharply break these verses into normal sections. And, and maybe you picked up on that tonight um, as we went through this. Um, but if you look at my study Bible on my computer you'll see that I have two highlighter colors over some of these verses, right? So I break my sections into different highlighter colors when I, when I highlight the passage. And some of these verses have two highlighter colors, okay? Um, if, you don't, if you can remember back to um, Pastor Jim's introductory message a few weeks back, he stated that love was the most mentioned truth in this, epi in this epistle. After all, John was called the beloved apostle. He refers to the readers, especially in this chapter, as beloved, along with other endearing terms here. And as we begin to draw this message to a close this evening, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 21. As has been mentioned before, John has a way of outright stating his purpose uh, for his readers, something us lowly expositors are very grateful for. <laughs> um, but remember at the beginning of this message, I said John would give us three facts that would drive us to action, right? So what is this action? Look down with me at verse 21, and let's find out. John says, And this commandment we have for him, from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. But this isn't the first time this truth has shown up in this mosaic. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. And verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. This passage, from the origin of love we recalled from the Father, to the inspiration of love we perceived from the Son, and the maturation of love we received from the Spirit, points to this unequivocal call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. John pointed around to those the church was commanded to love. The love believers are to give to others is not theirs, but the love God first showed to them. This is the first reason why Christians should love other believers. The beloved apostle Excuse me, like the light of the moon is not its own, but the sun's, the love we are to show to others is not ours, but it originates with the Father. It was the Father who set his love on us first. It was the Father who plucked us up from the pit of sin and set us apart as a people on a trajectory for redemption rather than destruction. This was something that was done despite any work of our own. And friend, this is why the doctrines of grace are, are so vital to our beliefs. It's not anything we did to deserve it. We couldn't even know him apart from his revelation of himself to us. 
Our text says in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Um, The English Standard Version drops the word him and just states that we love because he first loved us. I, I tend to agree with this translation choice, given the context here. So how can we think that we are better than others? The love God has given to us is not ours in the first place. What makes us think we have the right to not show love to others? Not only everyone, but particularly those who've been regenerated, those um, who have been shown his love too. Who are we to think that we have a monopoly on the love of God in our lives? The love God showed us should pour out of our lives as a reflection of the Father's grace in our own lives. The Father is the origin of love. How are you showing it? Next, the love believers are to give to others is tangible. Our great inspiration for love, Christ himself, gave of himself freely to others and tangibly showed love to those around him. John knew about this. He saw it. It was he who carried the title, the disciple whom Christ loved. As a people living under grace and the love of God, our inspiration for showing love to others, specifically other believers, should be Christ himself. Look with me in verse 20. It says, if, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, notice the specificity of, of other believers here, he is a liar, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Here John gives a pointed statement. You are a liar if you say you love God and hate your brothers and sisters in Christ. But what does he mean by this? At first, my mind went to the idea that if we're a people who bear the love of God within us, how can we not love the people God also set his love toward? And this is true. This is, this is what John's saying here. But he goes deeper than that. Okay? He says, For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Quite simply put, John says that if you are incapable of showing love to those around you, your love is fake. It's fraudulent you probably don't have a godly love within you at all. This is reason to look within at your regeneration. The idea of loving those around us, specifically other believers, carries action. It's a tangible love. We see and are around other believers. If we can't show love to them in our service, in our words, it's doubtful we carry genuine love at all. The Father is the origin of love. How are you showing it? Christ is our inspiration. So who are you showing love to? Next, the love believers are to give to others is non-negotiable. Verse 21 states, this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth, um, excuse me, I messed it up in my notes here. Let me read it from the Bible. (laughs) And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. This idea goes hand in hand with the previous verse, that our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is a product of genuine salvation. John takes it a step further, though, and says that this is a commandment from God himself. There's heaviness to this now as John closes this chapter. Our love for our brothers and sisters is necessary. It's required. It's commanded. If you love God, you'll love your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. It's a fact. You will. It's non-negotiable. Now, it's not easy. This is a work of the Spirit in our lives. This is a fruit of the Spirit. The Father is the origin of love. How are you showing it? Christ is the inspiration of our love. To whom are you showing it? The Spirit is the perfecter of our love. To whom are you proclaiming it? I love to people watch. Um, it's a hobby that gets me into trouble a lot because I also judge when I people watch. But I remember being a kid and watching the interactions of adults around me. I'd watch as people um, might be a little bit different, um, and I'd hear what would be said about them behind their back, maybe. I'd watch as people would smile to their faces and laugh at them behind their backs. I picked up as, uh, on these things as kind of like a disconnected third party, right? 
then I remember meeting Elizabeth's dad for the first time. Um, I didn't know Elizabeth was going to be here tonight, so <laughs> pardon the next words I'm going to say, or she'll be embarrassed, but it's fine. But I remember meeting Elizabeth's dad for the first time, um, and if you know anything about Chad, he loved people, like a lot. Um, Chad owned a duplex which housed disabled adults, and he'd spend hours over there, you know, playing games with them, hanging out with them, working with them, just, you know, trying to do whatever he could to make them happy, to make their day better. Um, Chad would approach the person in the room that nobody noticed and talk with them, finding anything positive about him uh, and pointing it out and encouraging him and, you know, building it up with it. He just had a gift to be able to do that. And Chad would share the gospel with anyone he came in contact with throughout his different job sites. I remember meeting Chad for the first time and being greeted with a hug um, and the kindest interaction I've ever had with a human being. And this was so peculiar to me because, like, I was, I was going to his house to meet him to date his daughter, right? And that's not usually a response that you get from the person that you're, you know, whose daughter you're trying to date. But I remember being floored as I grew to know Chad more and more over the next few years. I remember being blown away to see the thousand-plus people at his funeral. Every single one of these people were people that Chad influenced, that, that, that he loved, he showed love to. So what was it about him that made this memorable? It was the fact that he loved people with a love only God could give. He experienced that supernatural love of God and couldn't help but pour it out on those around him. The love of God in his life burst out at the seams. Um, now, Chad's gone now. He passed away last year. Um, but Chad's Christ-like love was infectious, okay? If you talk to Elizabeth, you'll see her dad's love in her. She's a very loving person, a very caring person, and you'll see that love that she learned from her father in her own life. If you talk to Chad's sisters or his kids, anybody that he had an influence on, you'll pick up on a loving spirit that they caught from Chad. This is how it ought to be for us believers. Our passage says we love because he first loved us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. God first gave us his love, Jesus, his son, was the greatest inspiration for love. God first gave us his love, and Jesus, his son, was the greatest inspiration for our love. And the Spirit perfects love within us so that we may live lives showing supernatural love to those around us, particularly other believers. So as we go our separate ways this evening, let's strive to be holy as God is holy and show his love to those around us. Let's pray that the love Christ showed would be worked through us by the Spirit, that others would see God through us, and we would love God's people as God loves them as well. Thank you, God, for this time that we've had in your word. Thank you for your goodness to us, and um, I pray that you would help us just to remember to love as you love, and that you would continue to work your love through us um, each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.